The title of our message today is What Jesus Said When He Was Dying and Its Importance. Of course, when anybody is lucid and has understanding and they are aware that they are dying, the things that they say near the very, very end are always important. You want to listen to what they say. More so with Jesus, who has sacrificed his life on the cross. And as we get to his death, I don't want us to think of this as a tragedy. Oh, what a horrible thing that he was an innocent man who was condemned, that he died upon the cross and he could have done so much more. That's not what's happening. This is a heroic act of sacrifice. He is sacrificing his life to make provision, a fountain of water for anyone who is thirsty to know God and walk with him, to be able to come and drink. I liken it to a man that sees a child on a railroad track. And he wants to save that child and realizes he doesn't have enough time to grab the child and get out of the way. So he knocks the child out of the way and takes the full force of the train. We would not say of that man, what a tragedy. We would say, what a remarkably brave man that gave the sacrifice of his life so that child could have a life. That's what we are seeing with Christ. It is him laying his life down in a heroic way. And we now come to the point where he will breathe his last breath. Now, you can take the time Jesus spent on the cross and you can break it up in several different ways. Uh, there, there There were six hours. He was crucified at nine in the morning and he died at three in the afternoon. And at noon, there was a supernatural darkness that covered the earth. We'll talk about that darkness in our next couple of studies as we're talking about the things that happened around the cross. The earthquake that happened, uh, the centurion saying, you know, truly, this was a righteous man. Uh, the, blo- the darkness that happened, the veil in the temple being torn into, all these things that happened around the cross we'll be talking about. But you can also take his statements from the cross and you can divide them. The first three statements that he makes are concerned about other people, which is remarkable. He's dying, he's suffering. They're driving nails through his hands and feet. He's hanging up on the cross. He's in the excruciating agony of it all. And he thinks of other people. What an incredible example. First of all, while he's being crucified, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He's thinking about his enemies, the very ones that are crucifying him. He says, Father, forgive them. The next thing he does is say to a thief on the cross, a sinner, a man condemned of a crime. And he says to him, today you will be with me in paradise. He's thinking about a sinner. He's thinking about his enemy. He's thinking about a sinner. And then the responsibility for his mother. He looks down and sees his mom at the cross. And what a horrible moment that must have been for Mary. It was spoken of when she brought Jesus to the temple to dedicate it. And she was told, a spear is going to pierce your heart. Certainly it meant there at the cross as she watched her son die. And Jesus looked down being the oldest son and said, son, a mother, your son and son, your mother. He put the responsibility of care for Mary into the hands of the youngest of the apostles, John. And so these three things, the first three things he says is about other people. And as I said, it's a remarkable example to us that when we are going through difficulties, it is so easy to become introspective, but Philippians 2 still applies. Put other people's interest above your own. When you are in the deepest, 
darkest, most difficult time that you are in, still think of the people around you, your enemies. Jesus said, love your enemies, the people around you who are sinners and the people you are responsible to. The more you do that, the more you are like Christ. Now, the last four statements of the cross are him in his agony of the cross. It's him being caught up into what happened. You've got to think about the condition that Jesus was in. He was fully man and fully God. But somehow people think that being this fully God man and fully God gave him a supernatural ability to be able to handle the cross in a way that no one else could. That other people might get confused. Other people might go into shock. Other people might have, he didn't need anything. He hadn't eaten anything since he was arrested the night before. He had been beaten all night long. He had been scourged, which killed some people. He had carried the cross part way to Golgotha and there they crucified him and he'd hung on that cross for six hours bleeding. And I don't know if you've ever had an, an electrolyte event. I have, where I'm, I'm, I'm walking, I walked six miles, didn't drink enough water and literally felt like I was sick, incredibly sick and couldn't go on anymore. Some of you guys have had the same experience. There's no reason for us to think that Jesus didn't have that. Also, when you go through a traumatic physical event, you go into shock. Your body has defense, a defense mechanism that brings you into shock. And any of you who have been on the scene when someone has had something horrifying happen to them, you know that there is some confusion that takes place. So for us to think that Jesus wouldn't go through this, I think is a little bit, well, he's fully human. And I think Jesus was going through all of this. And also studies show us that we are aware of when we are dying. In other words, when it comes to the point of our death, there is something different about dying than feeling tired and wanting to go to sleep. We know we're dying. Now we didn't need a study to tell us this, for those of us that have experienced the death of loved ones, I often tell the story about 10 years ago to this month, my late wife, Lisa, went to be with the Lord. And on the morning that she went to be with the Lord, I went in, I gave her a little drink of water and I kind of straightened her up a little bit. And I came around to talk to her and she suddenly had a shocked look on her face. It was, it was a shock. And she breathed her last breath. She knew at that moment that she was dying and there was no way anybody could convince me otherwise that she didn't know it. My father who died of Lou Gehrig's disease, my mom tells me that he had been out for a while, opened up his eyes, looked at her and smiled and then breathed his last breath. And now a study shows that we know when we're dying. And that makes sense. Something physiological is happening to us. Our soul is getting ready to leave our body. Our spirit's getting ready to leave our body behind. And so we would know this is something different. I haven't experienced this before. This is different. So Jesus would have known on the cross when we're looking at these things that he is dying. And it, it, it is revealed in the things that are said. And so I want to read this text to you. We've been around this text for a while. We're going to be around it for a couple more studies as we talk about the things that happened around the cross. But let's read it and I'll point out a couple of things as we make our way through here. This is Luke 24, 23, 44, and 49. By the way, we're going through the book of Luke, so this is just our normal process of where we are. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. So three hours of supernatural darkness on the cross. This is in the daytime. It cannot be a solar eclipse because there's a full moon. 
I'm not claiming I understand why that's the case. I just have looked up experts who will say that, all right? So you can look it up if you want to. Then the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God saying, certainly this was a righteous man. Now in the movie, The Greatest Story Ever Told, which was I think made in the 60s, John Wayne played this centurion. And so John Wayne steps back and says, truly, this was the son of man. That's all you're going to get from me about John Wayne. <laughs> Verse 48 says, and when the whole crowd who came together that, uh, to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breast and returned. But his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching all of these things. Now, as Jesus comes to the very end of these nine hours, he has four statements that he says together, and this is when he's dying. It starts with the statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, again, those who want to say that Jesus doesn't have any confusion, that he's not in shock at all, that he wouldn't have done that. And there's no reason for us to think that he wouldn't. But they say that all Jesus is doing here is pointing to Psalms 22. And it does point to Psalms 22. And we're going to go there because these words are the first, is the first verse in Psalms 22. So he is doing that. But he's also saying, why, are you, why have you forsaken me? And again, there's no reasons, and scholars will tell us, there's no reason for us to think there's any passage in the Bible that would ever have us to think that the Godhead would have been separated at that moment. That God would have, we sing a song, God, the father turned his face away, but he didn't turn his face away as in there was some terror in the Godhead and now the son was alone for the very first time. That wouldn't be what was being done. Jesus is praying to be delivered and God is not delivering him. And in his shock and the confusion of the state he's in, he asks why. Now, if he asks why, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That it's okay for you to ask why. When you are in the midst of a deep, difficult, dark time and God's not delivering you or something horrible happens to you, you the loss of a loved one. I've been there and I've said to God, why? I've even had an accusation against God. You don't really love us. That was my accusation to him. And here there is an accusation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The accusation is, God, you've forsaken me. You've said you never would. So it is okay for us to take those emotions and go to God. Here it is in Matthew 27, 46 and 49. We read, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out. Now notice the time, about the ninth hour. That would be three o'clock. He's been on the cross for, for six hours now. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That's a compilation of Aramaic words and Hebrew words. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard it said, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it for him to drink. And the rest said, let him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come to him. 
Now, why did Jesus cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because God is not answering him at that point. And it does point us to Psalms 22, which starts out with the same, same statement. And then when you get into Psalms 22, it is a first person account of a crucifixion. A thousand years before the time of Christ, this is a Psalm of David, and hundreds of years before Romans invented crucifixion. The Babylonians did not crucify. The Greeks did not crucify. It was a Roman invention and it was meant to, to maximize suffering in execution. And so there's this, and how do you have a first person account? That's a person who is crucified telling you what's happening. We never in all of history have anybody that was crucified that survived. Josephus, who was a historian with Titus when he wrote into Rome, was a priest, a uh, Jewish priest, and he had defected. And when he went into Rome, after they had sacked the city, he saw two of his friends who were priests as well who had been crucified. And he went to the guard and said, these guys are my friends, take them down. They took them down from the cross, but Josephus reports, reports that they died anyway. So here's Psalms 22. This is the first verse. Same thing Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then we get what else is going on. Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry in the daytime and you do not hear in the night season and am not silent. So there was darkness on the cross for three hours. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted in you and were delivered. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. He's saying, look, our fathers were delivered and you're not delivering me. Psalms 22, 11, we jump ahead. Be not far from me for trouble is near for there is none to help me. Then we jump ahead a little more to Psalms 22, 15 through 16. My strength is dried up like a pot shard. My tongue clings to my jaw. Imagine the incredible thirst of hanging on that cross for those six hours. And Jesus said, I thirst. Here in this first person account of a crucifixion, my tongue clings to my jaw. You have brought me to the dust of death. He's aware he's dying. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Hundreds of years before crucifixion was invented, you have a person who's crucified that's telling you what he's going through. And I will suggest, submit, believe that this is the account of what was going on in the mind of Christ, given through the prophet David as he gave us this psalm. In Psalms 22, 21, we move forward a little more and it says, save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. He's talking about those who are surrounding him, who hate him, who are mocking him. And then he says this, you have answered me. And note it there, right at the end of verse 21 of chapter 22, you have answered me. The Psalm distinctly changes from all these horrible things are happening to me and why aren't you helping me to you have answered me. And if we were to put this to music, just read it and put it to music, the music would change here because the tone of the Psalm changes. And he starts talking about what this answer was. The very next verse, Psalm 22, 22. I will declare my name, uh, your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. This one dying on a cross says, I'm going to speak to Israel. I'm going to go to Israel. So he's dying for Israel. And then a few verses later, he talks about another group of people he's dying for. This is verse 27. 
All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you. He's not only dying for Israel, but he's dying for all nations. God had said to Abraham, one is going to come from you and he will bless all nations. And this is the act by which that is happening. We jump ahead to another group of people. So far we have Israel and we have the nations. But now he says this, a posterity shall serve him. This is 22, 30 through 31. A posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted to the Lord, to the next generation that will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will not be born that he has done this. To a people that haven't been born yet. Jesus is, now he knows, I'm dying for Israel. I'm dying for the nations. I'm dying for a people not even born yet. That's you and me. And the message would be brought to us. And that's exactly what it says. Now, when Jesus realizes that, he says, it is finished that he has done this. Now, after saying Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, and going through this and finally coming to the realization, I'm dying for these people, then he says, I thirst. And there's some irony here. The man who said to the woman at the well, drink of the water that I give you and you will never thirst again, becomes thirsty. R really, truly thirsty. The one who stood up in the temple and said, if you, any, any of you that are thirsty, come unto me and drink and out of you will gush torrents of living water. Himself is thirsty. John 19, 28 through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing all things were now accomplished, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, bowing his head and gave up his spirit. Now, that he would become thirsty for you. We're, we're seeing Jesus taking our place for everything. The Bible says he was beaten for our peace. It says that he carried our sorrow and our grief, that he died for our iniquity. And now he is thirsty so you can be satisfied spiritually. And did you notice that, that when they were mocking, when, when Jesus cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, somebody put a sponge on a reed and put it up to his mouth. But here, when he says, I thirst, they put the sponge on hyssop. And for biblical students, that will kind of cause a light to go off. David prayed in Psalm 51, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. The priest in the Old Testament were to sprinkle the, the application of the blood of the sacrifice they made on that family with hyssop. So if you were living in those days, you would bring your sacrifice. The priest would sacrifice the sacrifice and then he would put the blood into a basin. Your whole family would come near. He would take hyssop, dip it in the blood and apply it to you. So you would leave church splattered with blood. If you lied and said, I went to church. No, you didn't. You're not splattered with blood. And so, and also in the, with a Passover lamb, Jesus is the Passover lamb. This is the deliverance of the children of Israel out of Egypt led by Moses. And God said, if you want the, the death angel to pass over you, you're going to have to take the blood of a lamb, dip it in, dip hyssop in it and put it on the doorpost of your house. And then the death angel will pass over. 
So what is the application of them putting the sponge on hyssop and Jesus drinking wine, which earlier was re a representation of blood for him to drink it on the cross? That we have to have the blood of Christ applied to us. It was hyssop that applied it. It's now applied to us when we receive Christ. But the picture here is complete. Now, did Jesus, go, did Jesus break his promise? Jesus said to his disciples, when he gave them the third cup of the Passover, which by the way is the cup of redemption, he said, take this cup and drink it. It is the cup of my new covenant shed for you. And I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until I drink it with you in the kingdom. And now on the cross, you take this sour vinegar wine and they put it to his lips and he drinks it. So he said, I won't drink of wine, but he drinks wine. Now it's a different kind of a wine. Nevertheless, he's still drinking wine. One's a very cheap vinegar wine. The other one would be a more expensive wine that they would have at the Passover meal. But he didn't break his promise and this is why. Because when he was giving the third cup of redemption, he said, I will not drink of the fruit of this vine, of this, he's, he's speaking of that cup. I will not drink of this until we do it in the kingdom of heaven. Some people believe that that was fulfilled when Jesus rose from the dead, came to his disciples. They were freaked out, a ghost. And he said, give me some wine, give me some food. And he ate and he drank among them. That that was a picture of the kingdom. Maybe, maybe he's talking about the actual kingdom when he's on the throne in the future. And he will drink of it then. And we'll all join together. It will be something we will all see him do. But let me read it to you to show you that he did not break his word. This is Matthew 26, 29. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine, th that particular fruit of the vine in that third cup. So I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day I drink it new with you in the Father's kingdom. So Jesus is thirsty on the cross for us and he satisfies the thirst of mankind. There's some irony there. The, the third thing he says, or the next to the last thing he says on the cross is it is finished. This is the Greek word totelestai and it means paid in full. There are a lot of things that were finished on the cross. First of all, the law. We are no longer under the law, but we're now under grace because Jesus died as the sacrifice. The law could only cover sin with sacrifices, but Jesus takes them away, the book of Hebrews says, and so we are no longer under the law, which it says in Romans, which it says in, in Galatians, which it says in Hebrews, we are not under the law. And I say that with such, with so emphatically because I heard somebody again say yesterday, someone was trying to get them to eat kosher because real Christians are supposed to eat kosher. It says in Colossians 2, 16, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food or drink or new moons or Sabbaths. Those are all Jewish. For these are a shadow of things to come. Christ is the substance. Don't let anyone judge you. The law is done. The second thing that was fulfilled when he died on the cross or when he said it is finished was the fulfillment of prophecy of his life. There's a lot of prophecy to be fulfilled by Jesus in his resurrection and in his second coming but there were prophecies that were written about his life and he will fulfill the last one of them with the last statement that he makes and all that was written about him had been fulfilled. Jesus was aware of this. He said, all that is written of me must be fulfilled. And so he did certain things. And so people say, well, that's self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, that's okay because there's those, those that he couldn't fulfill. 
Some of them he did fulfill, knowing he must should fulfill them. In Colossians 2, 14 and 15, speaking, oh, the last thing that is finished here and the thing that's, that he's talking about is redemption. The work of redemption is finished. If it's finished, there's nothing you can add to it. So you can't let anybody say, listen, you're going to have to keep the sacraments in order to be saved. You're going to have to uh, uh, be baptized in order to be saved. You're going to have to speak in tongues in order to be saved. Th th it's finished. All we need to do now is receive it. And whatever we do after that, we do out of obedience to our God, not for salvation. And when you receive it, there's nothing meritorious about that. No, no more than your child who receives a gift on Christmas morning earned that gift. Come and get your gift, little Johnny. And little Johnny goes and gets the gift and you say, well, now you earned it because you came and got it. You deserve it. We wouldn't talk like that. We got him a gift. It, it was free. The Bible says you have been saved by grace through faith. It is a free gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So it is finished. And it is this work of redemption. Colossians 2, 14 and 15 says, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that is against us, which is contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So he took away the handwriting that was against us and nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. Principalities and powers is a reference to demons. He disarmed principalities and powers when he, was, when he died on the cross. There, there's a hymn that we do love to sing, and it's called, It Is Well. It is well, it is well with my soul. And he talks about sea billows rolling. And um, he wrote this song after his wife and children had perished at sea. And he was taking a boat over, and he asked the captain, can you stop the ship at the coordinates where my family died? And he stood out, and he looked at the waters that had swallowed up his family, and this song came to him. It is well with my soul. Even in the midst of that tragedy. It makes that song even more powerful when we do sing it. Here's one of the choruses that he gives in this song. He says, My sin, oh the bliss of the glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, Oh, my soul, that's what's finished. My sin, not in part, but in whole, has been nailed to that cross. The debt has been paid. In 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19, we have the same thought. God, working through Christ, forgave us our sins. It says, now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us a ministry of reconciliation. And here it is. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the world, word of reconciliation. Jesus finished the work God has given him. And this is why I say it was a heroic act. Because he could have stopped it at any time. When Peter tried to defend him in the garden, Jesus said, put your sword away. Don't you know I could call 12 legions of angels to rescue me? He did not have to go all the way through it, 
but he faced it. He was committed. He was devoted for the joy that was set before him, which is you and I coming to him. He had this depth of commitment. The final thing that he says when he dies, and this is him actually dying, is, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He knew that there was a life after this life and that his spirit would be put into the hands of God. And I believe that everyone knows there's a life after this life. I'm not saying that there isn't the materialist or the humanist who says, I don't believe in anything. I think we're going to go on to darkness. I'm not saying they're lying. I'm saying God has put into each one of us eternity. The Bible says God has set eternity in man's hearts. They are deceiving themselves. But we know there's more to life than this. We know it. And we have to put our hands, our spirit into God. And Jesus gives us his example in doing it. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When, when I no longer am in control of my soul and my spirit, when my body is now dead, I want to put my spirit into God's hands. This is in Luke 24, 23, 44. That's our text we're covering. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole earth until the ninth hour. And when he had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, would this surprise you that the very last thing Jesus ever said was a fulfillment of Scripture? In Psalms 31.5, it says, Into your hands I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. Now, Jesus was redeeming us. So we could pray Psalm 31, 5, into your hands I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord of truth. Now, there's a tradition that Hebrew mothers used this psalm to teach their Hebrew children to pray at night. Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. I'll tell you why I find that really interesting. Because my mom, who's been visiting with us for about a month now, but my mom taught me when I was a child to pray, now I lay me down to sleep. How many of you guys had that prayer taught to you, by the way? All you older folk. Uh, <laughs> now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Now, I didn't realize I was praying not to die every night, but that's what my mom had taught me. <laughs> if I die before I wake. Now, I prayed it a hundred times faster than that. I was like, now I lay me down to sleep. Pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Amen. That was my prayer. That's how fast I prayed it. But it's kind of remarkable that this is the same. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And we will one day pray a prayer like it. At least I hope we have that opportunity. Stephen, the first martyr of the church, said, I looked and I, I, I said, he said, I see heaven open and I see the Son of Man standing by the right hand of God. Uh, into your hands I commit my spirit. Stephen committed his spirit into the hands of God so that we could as well. We all want to be able to say this, knowing that there is a life after this. And I talked about near-death experiences, didn't I, in this service? Yes, no? Gary Habermas? I've only done a bunch of services, I don't know. We do know now there is evidence for life after death. And that's through near-death experiences. Not that they see heaven or hell or that they're, they're terrified or that they have great peace. <clears throat> but when someone dies and then they are brought back, they often talk about being out of their bodies. Their spirit being, their soul being out of their bodies. Looking down at the operation table 
and they know things often they shouldn't know. They know what happened in the next room. They know what was happening in the waiting room. They could talk about what, what, in one case, they talk about what's on the roof of a certain hospital, a little girl who would never have known. Now, Dr. Gary Habermas, who is going to be here with us in our apologetics conference in March, he is the, foremo he's the world's foremost expert on the resurrection of, of Jesus, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. I look so forward to him being here. But he wrote another book documenting near-death experiences. And he documents these stories that took place that proves that there's something separate from our bodies. And if that is the truth, then you have to deal with that. You say, well, I believe I'm going to die and there's going to be darkness. Well, you want to follow science? You want to follow the evidence? then if people are having experiences where they are seeing things they shouldn't know after they die, then don't count on that you're going to be in darkness. And we have one who has gone before us and gave us the example to say, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now a few things we see from Jesus saying these things on the cross. Number one, death is not the end of the road for a Christian. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Number two, in difficult times they should drive us to God. Jesus gets closer to God the closer he gets to death. I can say from my, my experience with my, my late wife, Lisa, the closer she got to death, the closer she got to God, and the more she encouraged people around her to be right with God. And she took to saying to people, her friends, when they would come to see her, I'll see you around the corner. She never said goodbye, but she said, I'll see you around the corner in that looking forward to that kingdom. And finally, that we could say into your hands, I commit my spirit. We can trust, we all can put our spirits, our souls into the hands of the living God. Now, three things in closing. If you are in difficulty, it is okay to question God. Jesus did it on the cross and Jesus never sinned. But let me just say to be respectful, remember you are talking of the judge of all the world. Job did it. Job going through all of his horribleness. You know what Job said? I wish God were a man and I would set him down and I would say, what are you doing? Maybe you feel like that. Uh, God, I can't, I wish he was a man. I set him down and what are you doing? Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's okay to go to him. I did it in my grief of my loss. As I said, I even had an accusation against God. You don't, you didn't really love us. Now I know God loves us, but in that moment, that I was going through. I had that time of questioning God and it's okay. Number two, you are fighting from victory, not for victory. You might think, I don't know what it has to take to win. You've already won. The battle's already done. You just got to go through the, the process now. You just got to walk with Christ through the end to the end of it because he's the one who gave you the victory. It is finished. You're fighting from victory, not for victory. And finally, no matter what happens to you today, even if in living for Christ today, your life is taken from you, your spirit will be in the hands of God. To be absent from this body, the Bible says, is to be present with the Lord. This life is temporary and it's meant to be temporary. And James tells us this life is like a vapor. It's here one moment, and it's gone the next. And so live for God now. Trust in him now. God's got a plan. God's got a purpose for your life.
The Bible says, whom God foreknew, he knew you would give your life to Christ. He predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. God has preordained works for you to work in them. He preordained those works. Knowing that you would be a Christian, he has given you a job. You shine for him. Live, if Christ was this committed for us, let's be committed to him. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, thank you that we can take time to see this event where Jesus dies on the cross actually has his spirit separated from his body and that will be the case for three days. And Lord, we see his commitment and we ask that you would help us to be that committed. Lord, thank you that you reveal how Jesus met death in order to redeem us that we could say into your hands, I commit my spirit because you have redeemed us. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.